I'd like to welcome you to the Jed Hughes Podcast. Each episode will feature a unique leader and will delve into the qualities that inspire greatness, galvanize organizations, and teach the next generation of aspiring leaders. Jed ran the process that resulted in the hiring of Pete Carroll, Jim Harbaugh, Andy Reid, Masai Uzuri. Now, according to Forbes, Jed is the most connected man in sports. Our guest today is an NBA Hall of Famer. He is part of winning four NBA championships. He, David Stern, Russ Granick, and Val Ackerman ignited the NBA, All-Star Weekend, the Dream Team, and launching the WNBA. In addition, his courage and conviction led him to be the first openly gay sports executive in professional sports. He takes us through this incredible Hall of Fame journey, our guest, Rick Welts. Welcome, friends. Our guest today has achieved number ones in a variety of areas. He began that basketball interest and passion at the University of Washington. Our guest, Rick Welts. Rick. Thank you, Jake. Great, great to be with you as always. So actually, I'd even go back a little earlier than that. I grew up in Seattle, Washington. Our very first professional sports team was the Seattle Supersonics. Was born in 1967, and I, you know, I, my dad and I, our currency of communications was really going to games. So I was going to Husky football games at the University of Washington. I was three years old. That's where we spent our private time together. That's where we got into our conversations. So we started going to Seattle Supersonics games uh, when they arrived in town. It was a big deal uh, because it was the first time you know Seattle had had a major league sports team, and I fell in love with. Definitely the game, but I also fell in love with what it meant uh, to see, at that point, probably 11,000, 10,000 people in the old Seattle Center Coliseum get together and only have one thing in common, which was their love of the Sonics. And I think it, it set me on a course of understanding what sports can mean in people's lives and the role it can play in our communities. It, was really, it really grew out of a love of sports that my dad and I share. So how did you get uh, connected with uh supersonics to begin with? Well, this is always the chuckle part of my introduction. So the coolest kid at Queen Anne High School uh, was a kid by the name of Earl Woodson. And Earl had that designation because he was a ball kid for the Seattle Supersonics and the team I was obsessed with. In our English literature class, when, when I'm sure we should, be, should have been studying the classics, I'd sit in the back of the class with Earl and try to get any little nugget of information about my beloved Sonic. So one day, one day Earl came into school and long look on his face. It's like, you know, Earl, what's wrong? He goes, oh man, my family's moving out of town. Trying to conceal my joy at that moment. It was like, Earl, like Earl, it's your buddy Rick. You got to take me down and introduce me to whoever it is that hires those, uh, those ball kids for the Sonics, which he ended up doing. And I ended up getting to work for my, uh, for my beloved team at the age of 16 as a, as a ball kid. And you worked your way up after you graduated, joined the organization, 
and, and you worked your way up to the, the head of public relations until you left. So how, how was that journey? You know, after I was 18 and going off to, to college, I thought that was probably the end of my, uh, my career with the Sonics. But a, a great guy who ran marketing and public relations, Dave Watkins, invited me to work part time while I was going to school, which was wonderful for me. And at the time I got out, I got hired full time to work there. And then, then another big break a couple of years later was that our coach at the time, uh, Bill Russell, uh, got fired. At that time, uh, I got to move in a different role, which was really my dream job at age 27, I think, as being public relations director of the Sonic. It was really an interesting journey. And, and Jenny, I don't know if you remember historically, so my first year at the Sonics was 1977-78 season as public relations director. And that year, uh, 22 games into the season, we were the worst team in basketball. We had a record of 5-17. and 17. We fired the coach that had been hired after Bill Russell, a guy named Bob Hopkins, and, and put Lenny Wilkins in charge as coach. That season that we started five and 17, we ended up going to the NBA Finals uh, and losing to the Washington Bullets in seven games, and then came back the following season and again played the Bullets in the Finals and won the championship. In those two years I did the job, I got to go to the NBA Finals uh, twice, and, and we won the NBA championship, Seattle's only NBA championship in 1979. No, that's incredible. And then you take the journey east and end up joining an organization that's just at the foundation of really building upon the NBA. You go to work, you, you go there and David Stern, Russ Granick, Val Ackerman and yourself join and you create something that was unimaginable in terms of the buzz. What was it like with, with David working working with him? I didn't know who he was when I had a little phone message one day uh, coming back from lunch that uh, had a name and a, and I recognized it as, a, as the NBA's phone number. So all the lawyer introduced himself and said, hey, I'm in charge of putting together a, a business operation at the NBA. We don't we don't have one. We schedule games. We assign referees. That's pretty much what we do. And my job is, uh, you know, in, in my new role here as executive vice president has put together a business organization. So why don't you come back and see me? So Jen, I don't think I've been to New York City more than twice in my life. I got to spend a night in the Waldorf Astoria Hotel, which was, you know, my eyes were this big. Uh, walk, walk a few blocks over to the Olympic Tower. Our half hour meeting, I think, went about two hours. And uh, David Stern and I connected really on on every level. I think I, I checked all the boxes for him and his boxes at the time were, you know, passionate about the NBA, young and really inexpensive. Um, <laughs> so I think I, I think I checked all the boxes and what he was looking for as he was kind of assembling this young group of people to try to try to venture out into the business world of sports, which really didn't exist at the NBA. That was that was 1982. So, you know, and my, my great fortune, along with a lot of those other people that he hired, of course, was 19, two years later, 1984, when the owners and their wisdom elected him commissioner to replace Commissioner O'Brien. And, and that, you know, and I got to go on a 17-year ride uh, with him working directly for him, which was, uh, you know, chance of a lifetime. Well, and then the things that you did, I mean, when creating All-Star, what was it like creating All-Star Weekend? I think you would understand this. It was uh, it was out of necessity to keep my job. I was I, I had the worst job at the NBA because my job was to go out and try to convince 
respectable companies to invest money in a league that was not very respectable at the time in 1982. When people look at the NBA today, it's really hard for them to imagine what the NBA was in 1982. We were not on the ecosystem of sports that anyone would invest in to put hard-earned marketing dollars in their brand next to our NBA brand. So like I was so naive about it because I'd grown up in Seattle when we won a championship. I thought NBA basketball was like that everywhere. Like you own the town. But it was a rude awakening to be there. So it, it was, you know, I was desperate to sell something. Like I had to find some sponsor. And I was sitting in my little New York apartment watching TV after work. And I, I stumbled on what was called the Cracker Jack Old Timers game in baseball. And I sat there and as I'm watching this unfold, I'm seeing it was in Washington, D.C. And I'm, I'm watching all these old guys get up and, you know, play baseball you know, one of them hits a home run over, I think it was the left field fence with this big Cracker Jack sign. And I'm, and all of a sudden, the, a light bulb went off. Stern had been elected commissioner, uh, but had not taken office yet. He was going to take office at the All-Star Game uh, in February. One of the things he had said to us uh, that he wanted to be part of how things were going to change with him as commissioner was to embrace the history of our game. We had totally, we didn't have a a video history of it. We didn't have a photographic history of it. We had lost touch with all these amazing athletes who had created the NBA. And like, we're, that's going to be us. We're going to embrace our history in a way we haven't done before. So, okay, I had that in my head. And then uh, a wonderful guy, I hope you met along the way, Carl Shear, who uh, passed away uh, within the last year. Carl was the president of the Denver Nuggets. We were going to Denver for All-Star. Uh, Carl came to town about in November before our February game so we could start thinking about what we were doing in All-Star. It's a little longer process now to work that out. Uh, but Carl said, you know, wonderful ABA heritage, American Basketball Association heritage in Denver, included the 1976 ABA All-Star game. And that's where the legendary ABA slam dunk contest took place. And uh, a young Julius Irving in the ABA uh, wowed the world by uh, taking off from the free throw line and dunking a basketball, which no one had ever seen before. Legendary. If you go to Denver, I think there's like 200,000 people I've met who were in McNichols Arena (laughs) (laughs) who saw that. So it was like, I went in to talk to Stern and said, okay, here's, here's the idea. Like, why don't we create a second day of all-star we could do an old-timers game and to kind of embrace our history the way you talked about and we could marry that with denver's slam dunk history and uh, he liked the idea so we got to go in and meet commissioner o'brien did not go well this was his last weekend in office and so i thought i was pretty deflated i don't know what happens uh, in the interim but a week later stern came into my office said okay here's the deal Uh, The commissioner says, number one, if you don't embarrass him on his last weekend in office, and two, if it doesn't cost the NBA a nickel, go for it, right? So with that imprimatur, uh, we ended up putting together All-Star Saturday. And the rest becomes history as it continues to blow out in the event that it is today and the things you do technology-wise and so forth. I mean, it's amazing. Then you come up with the dream team. How does that happen? Well, I didn't come up with the Dream Team. This has been a years-long effort. Uh, And you mentioned Russ Granick. I love that you mentioned Russ before, because Russ is really an unsung hero in this, in terms of behind the scenes, the diplomacy that had to happen. The NBA was not part of the international basketball structure. 
um, ABA USA was the name of the governing body in the United States, dominated by uh, you know colleges, uh, AAU, high school, uh, and we weren't a part of it. And our players, our American players, were not eligible to play in the Olympics. Our, our international players could play, but but none of our American players could play in the Olympics. So really, Stern and Granick went on a years long campaign to prove to the international governing body, FIBA, and to ABA USA that we would be great partners and actually would be good for the game of basketball if we could include NBA players in Olympic competition. It took a lot of people to get us to, there's a lot of stories about how we got to the point where uh, ABA USA, which changed its name to, as you now know it, USA Basketball, uh, included the NBA, uh, and FIBA accepted that, and and we were able to bring players there. But but I was in charge of, of figuring out how to market that. How do we take this amazing opportunity and market it? And that was the easiest job I ever had, Jared, because holy cow, greatest team ever assembled, I think, in Olympic competition ever in any sport uh, that just wowed the world. Uh, so that, that probably was my easiest job, but it, we did have to put together a whole program to bring that team to the world. Talk about some of the players on that team, just so some of the audience may not, may not know, know that, help them who the coach was and who some of the players were then. Yeah. Well, Chuck Daly was our coach, but the, uh, you know, it's a roster. Most people who have ever heard of the game of basketball would probably know, you know, Magic Johnson, Patrick Ewing, uh, Larry Bird, Michael Jordan. You know, there's some names that that, uh, that show pretty well. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> Charles then, Barkley. <laughs> yeah. Then you and Val uh, and David come up with the WNBA. Talk about how that happens. That was that was that wasn't a clear path for us. Um, you know, we felt we had reached a point at the NBA where we built an organization that maybe could apply the expertise we'd learned to to additional ventures. And there were two that we just kept debating. There was one we now know as the G League, but it was the Continental Basketball Association, which was independent of the NBA and uh, a level below player talent-wise, the NBA. And it was struggling. And we thought, you know, is there, is there room for a minor league in basketball? So that was on the table. And then we just kept getting drawn back to where women's sports was heading. And, you know, over a period of months and months and months, I think we really landed on, you know what, the WNBA or Women's Basketball League would be a better opportunity for us and really a perfect way to apply what we've learned to, to starting a brand new sports league. So if you remember at the time, uh, this was in the mid-90s, our American women, while they were the best athletes, the system we had was throw them together two weeks before the Olympics or two weeks before the World Championships and then send them off to play teams who've been playing together for years and years and years and years. And we no longer could win gold medals. We were not winning, even though we felt we had the best athletes. So the NBA uh, really was Stern's leadership with USA Basketball agreed to assemble the best group of female basketball players for a whole year before the Olympics and the NBA would fund it. You know, names that became legendary in the uh, in, in the WNBA, Lisa Leslie, Rebecca Lobo, Jennifer Azy, people like that. And they went and Tara Vanderveer, the brand new champion coach of Stanford, uh, took a year away from Stanford to coach that team. And they went, if I'm, if I'm remembering right, they went 52-0 and traveling 
all over the world for a year uh, to play the best American collegiate programs and the best international teams and rolled into Atlanta and just devastated the competition there. And that, like you'll remember, that Atlanta Olympics was really all about American women. And uh, we, we, we showed better there than we ever have in the Olympics. And it was really on the strength of that that we then were able to, to launch the W in a way that, uh, you know, it, it just set the stage in a, in a perfect way. And Val was the perfect leader with her background in basketball and, and her law background and her leadership quality. She, it, was, it was really off to the races. Then you have an opportunity to leave the NBA and join the Phoenix Suns to head them up. Talk about that move, how you made that decision and what you inherited. You're so in this business, you'll really understand it. I try to describe to people who aren't the difference between working for a league and working for a team. It would seem like the same thing. They're completely different businesses, right? And I love both. Uh, at the league, you're pretty much assured that half the teams are going to win every night and half the teams are going to lose. Somebody's going to win the championship and you get to do it all over again the next year. Now, with a team, you're riding a roller coaster every day, right? You're tied to the fortunes of a team. And some people are cut out for one. Some people are cut out for the other. I enjoyed both, but I knew, like, I call it like a defective gene. If you have that defective gene that draws you back to the winning and losing of team of, of your team, there's nothing that replaces that at the league. Uh, that, that, you know, putting everything out there that you've tried to do and, and people vote on it every night on whether you're doing a good job or a bad job. And I knew I would be drawn back to that. So that, that's really what got me back to the team side. I think you did there with Phoenix to really enhance them. I mean, well, yeah. obviously you had a Hall of Fame player at one point. I was drawn to Phoenix because of its history, right? Jerry Colangelo is all of our heroes in this industry. You know, grew up on the wrong side of the tracks in Chicago youngest general manager at, you know, at the Chicago Bulls, goes, starts the Suns, ends up buying it from his owners, like ends up owning his own team. Like he's all of our heroes. And so I, you know, I knew Jerry well, and he recruited me out there because he was splitting up. His son, Brian, was going, was running both the business and the basketball operations. And Jerry came to the conclusion everybody else has, is you really can't do that in today's NBA. It's, it's just, those are two big jobs that one person can't do both. He invited me to come in and, and run the business side. The team, honestly, had fallen on hard economic times and had fallen on hard competitive times. There was a history there that I knew it could be really successful. So it was it, the first couple of years were pretty rough. We, you know, we would have meetings about how to meet payroll and we had to we had to really struggle. But we also ended up signing a young player. By name, it wasn't that young at the time, by the name of Steve Nash. We traded away our best player the year before, won 29 games, miserable season. Stefan Marbury, we traded to New York, but it cr created an opportunity to sign Steve Nash as a free agent. And then, of course, the world changed. Mike D'Antoni, Steve Nash, Murray Stoudemire, Sean Marion created a brand new way of playing NBA basketball that still exists today. It revo revolutionized the game. And uh, with it came an unbelievable renewed popularity for the Suns and, and economic success. Then an opportunity comes, one that you've been carrying with you for a number of years that you hadn't talked about, one that uh, inside had to create a lot of anxiety. Take a job, you, you join Golden State, they have new ownership, and you come out and talk about your lifestyle. You talk about uh, your life 
and the things the things you've done. So talk a little bit about how you arrived at that decision at that point and the pressures and the anxiety. Uh, I talked to uh, uh, Marciniak and she talked about that when she was at Tennessee and what that was all like. So I, I know that it can be difficult. So best way you can explain that. I, as I said, had a lifelong love of sports. and um, But I also knew at a young age I was gay. To me, I, can, I, I just couldn't reconcile the two. I just, because I, I looked out there and looked out there, there was nobody I saw out there who taken the step of coming out as an executive in sports and there was a, a path I could follow. There just was nobody that had chosen to take that route. So for me, that was a real impediment. I love sports. I didn't know what the impact would be on my career. I really worried about that. I had a wonderful personal life, uh, family, supportive friends, things like that. But I kept that completely isolated in my work life. But my dad had passed away. Uh, my mom had been diagnosed with lung cancer. This was right toward the end of my tenure in, uh, in Phoenix. And I just actually went, went to my mom and said, look, I, I think for me, I need to like talk to my coworkers about who I am and bring my authentic self to work in a way I haven't been able to before it's my time, unless that would cause you any kind of problem or concern. And she encouraged me to go ahead and do it. So now what do I do? Uh, I don't really, I can't put it in context because it's me, right? So there there was a a guy in New York who ran a big PR firm by the name of Dan Cloris, who was a, a longtime friend who I knew knew the media better than anybody. So I asked to have dinner with him in New York one night and just said, Dan, like, here's my story. Um, here's who I am. I can take care of all this by just going and talking to my coworkers and accomplish what I want to accomplish. But is there, you know, is there something more here to my story? And <laughs> I'll never forget it, Jed. He looked across the dinner table to me and said, uh, he still calls me Ricky. He goes, Ricky, like, uh, if you're prepared to do this, uh, number one, I want to help, which was amazing. And, and number two, I think it's page A1 of the New York Times, which, you know, that was my, excuse my expression, my oh shit moment, right? Like that, really? Like, okay, that's, that was a big gulp. So Dan introduced me to this Pulitzer Prize winning reporter who still writes for the New York Times by the name of Dan Berry. Uh, never miss a Dan Berry story. It's always a treat. Uh, and Dan flew out to Phoenix. And, and Jed, you know, people like me and the jobs that I do at that time in my life, I was not well known because I did my job pretty well, right? I'm a guy in a suit who's running a running a basketball team. Yeah, but but as Dan crafted an idea where like, well, well, that's true, but the people that have befriended you along the journey, everyone knows. And if we could get them to tell your story, it would be so much more impactful. So that was the strategy. First thing was getting on a plane to go to Seattle, Washington, drive over to Mercer Island and uh, talk to Bill Russell, the winningest player in the history of the NBA. And my, my co-worker at, at the Sonics and a dear, dear friend my whole, almost my whole life. I walk up to his door. I knock on the door. The door opens. There's this giant of a man with his Boston Celtics cap on. And we go in and sit in his little den. And, you know, between the two chairs is a picture of on a table of Barack Obama inscribed, you know, to Bill, my inspiration, nothing intimidating at all about the setting. And, you know, I said, here's my story. Um, Would you do the one thing in your life that you hate doing, which is talk to reporters? 
and talk to this writer from New York Times and help tell my story. And he couldn't, you know, it was about a two minute conversation. And he was like, yeah, of course. Like, yeah. And then it was all about, do you remember the time? And, you know, we did this. Or do you remember the time and that cackle and that laugh? We sat there probably for a couple hours. Huge weight off my shoulder. But with different circumstances, repeated that meeting with with David Stern, with Steve Nash, our two-time MVP at the Suns, with Ballard and others. And, you know, what a blessing that, you know, a, a, a few weeks later, what was predicted did happen. Front page story, New York Times, written by Dan Barry, that was just uh, life-changing and uh, could not have been a better experience for me and could not have come at a better time in my life and, and something that, that, you know, I'm very thankful for every day. Some of the causes that you've had, you've had one of your partners die of AIDS and you were, you've been out in front in terms of promotion and, and donations and things to the cause. So, I mean, not only have you embraced it just talking about it, but you've embraced it from a, a global perspective as you talk about. Well, it's, it's been a blessing. Uh, I didn't really know what I was signing up for, right? But, uh, you know, there's probably not a week that goes by that somebody in our industry, um, tracks me down as somebody they want to talk to about their own situation. You know, they're not in a position where they feel like they can take the step of coming out in their work environment in sports. And it's still a very, you know, big decision, very personal decision to make. And when I just connect with somebody who could relate to their situation and and be a sympathetic ear and talking through, you know, where they are in their lives and, and what their options are going forward. So, that's a blessing. It's enabled me to, you know, I never thought I'd be going to the White House to Barack Obama's, you know, pride celebration. Um, and maybe, maybe even importantly, you'll remember a few years ago, we had awarded the All-Star Game to Charlotte. Yes. And uh, North Carolina, what, the city of Charlotte had passed a very uh, progressive uh, anti-discrimination bill in the city of Charlotte, and the North Carolina legislature took great offense to that and passed a state law that prohibited cities from passing such statutes and a really discriminatory law that was just stupid about uh, which bathrooms people could use. And, and it became a real lightning rod in the state. And the NBA had to make a decision. This sounds a little familiar right now yes. with what's going on in baseball, right? Well, had to make a decision about whether to go forward and play the game there. And uh, we had a board of governors meeting in Las Vegas where this was on the agenda. And Adam Silver, the commissioner, came up to me beforehand and said, you know, I'm going to let you have the last word when we have this discussion. And so I was like, okay. And, you know, Charlotte was a real success story. Michael Jordan had bought the team. And we're very proud of his ownership. Fred Whitfield, my counterpart there, is a rock star. Potentially could be very damaging economically to the city uh, after, you know, such a great announcement that All-Star was coming there. But, you know, I could look the owners in the eye in that discussion and say, look, I, you know, I'm in, I just want you to know I'm in contact with people in your organizations who reach out to me because they don't feel comfortable in your organization being able to to bring their full self to to work. And whatever you decide here, they're gonna notice how you what stance you do or don't take here. So please just have that in mind. And of course, Adam ended up bringing the game out of Charlotte. We actually used it as a way to get that legislation changed. And eventually a couple of years later, 
than originally scheduled did go back to Charlotte for one of our most successful All-Stars ever. So it's given me, you know, roles that I wouldn't have guessed uh, at the time I made the decision. You go to Golden State, new ownership group. And one of the things about when you're in a professional sport, you know, the financing coming from ownership can be impactful in terms of how you build your roster and the things you want to do and the vision they have. So I mean, you inherited an old arena in Oracle with the site of potentially building a new one. Talk through what that was like, what you inherited, because that, that had been run down. You did some really enormous things to be able to rebrand it and recreate excitement around going to a game and what it was like to be a fan for the Warriors. And then you had to make the decision where you're going to land in San Francisco. And we'll talk about that. Talk about the changes you did and how how you took that product and really drove it. Well, um, your, your role is to try to identify potential and matches between people and situations. That's what, that's what Jed Hughes does. And everybody in the NBA had looked at the Golden State franchise and said, oh my God, <laughs> look at the market that they're sitting in. Look at the companies who are changing the world in that market. Look at the fan support they've had. This is a team that's missed the playoffs 16 out of 17 seasons in a league where more than half the teams make the playoffs every year, yet fans keep coming back. It's got amazing fan support. That's a beautiful place to live. Like it has everything. So I, I like everybody else, had always looked at that franchise and said, oh my gosh, if this in the right ownership and management hands, this should stand toe-to-toe with any franchise, not just in the NBA, but in sports. I had made the decision to move to Northern California because my, my now husband was here with two kids. I was going to leave the sons. And through a third party, got introduced to Joe Lacob and Peter Guber, who had purchased the team a few months before uh, in Golden State. And they, they kind of, they potted once the uh, season had started in 2010 and just kind of wanted to wait a year to see what they had and decide before they started making a lot of changes. But now they've decided they wanted to hire a a team president. And I got to uh, go sit down with them in Joe's house uh, in the Bay area. And Joe, Peter and I sat there for a few hours and just talked about it. Jed, these are the, you know, we're all sports fans. These are, these are the owners that everybody who cares about a team wants to have. Uh, they're smart, they're competitive, they want to win, they want to do it the right way, uh, and they're prepared to, to provide the resources necessary to do that. Everything we talked about that day was, was like right on for me. It's, you know, things like wanting, you know, frankly, wanting to build a new arena. For me, uh, as you know, like in, in, in my job, it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to take everything you've ever learned about presenting a live sporting event and give it a, a physical form that's going to last for decades and create memories for, for decades to come. That was incredibly attractive, although we had no idea how we were going to do that. Um, also, their philosophy about, and you, you see a lot of team organizations, their belief that their basketball and business operations had to function as one as opposed to two entities that met when it was game time. From Jerry Colangelo and my time in Phoenix, I knew how powerful that could be. Um, so, you know, I, I like, where do I sign? Like, this is like, this is a dream come true. And it has been for 10 years. It's been just an unbelievable ride with cast of characters along the way that have made every day a joy. How do you decide on the location in San Francisco? Because that wasn't, you had a different pieces going on, how you're going to invest in it. 
and what you ended up building. I mean, you built an amazing, amazing facility. Well, you know, we had played the the Warriors came from. I'm not sure all your your listeners will know the Warriors originally were the Philadelphia Warriors, and uh, you know moved from Philadelphia to San Francisco, and then on later to Oakland, where we played the last 47 years. Had wonderful history there. And as you said, Oracle Arena actually is older than Madison Square Garden. It's the oldest uh, was the oldest arena in the NBA at the time. And while it was a great place to watch a game, uh, it didn't have any of the amenities that fans today expect or that allow you the financial success to be able to field world-class teams on an ongoing basis. So we knew we had to find a place. We, it could have been anywhere. It could have been in the East Bay, Oakland. It could have been anywhere. We had a really hard time getting traction. We knew one thing at the outset, which is different than a lot of teams, the political environment in San Francisco Bay Area is such that there there would be no public investment. There would there would be no possibility to be tax dollars involved in building a new private facility for a sports team. So that's a big hurdle, obviously, to have to overcome. Um, and then Mayor Lee, uh, Mayor Ed Lee, who has since passed away, Mayor of San Francisco, invited us uh, to give us a site on the San Francisco waterfront. Uh, it was, it, the site was called Piers 3032, long abandoned piers uh, right out in the San Francisco Harbor. We envisioned the Sydney Opera House, right? That's what we saw. And so we said, okay, you know, this is going to be our project. Let's let's move to San Francisco. You know, as you do or want don't want to get into on that. Obviously, we ran a huge opposition at that site on the waterfront and ended up pivoting to a land-based site just a mile away where where we built Chase Center uh, in an area called Mission Bay, very close to the, the Giants ballpark in the Mission Bay district. But it, it was a uh, it was a harrowing seven-year ride to get there. Absolutely. You've been around you know, different coaches, different players, and so forth. And you put three championship teams together since you've been with the Warriors. If you had to talk about two or three ingredients to go into making a championship team. Now, obviously, the Sonics, very different time, a game changed. But as you look at it from your vantage point, what goes into putting a successful product on the court? You know, I, I my, part of my stump speech is there are three ingredients that uh, make it possible for a sports franchise to have long-term success, and it's ownership, ownership, and ownership. Uh, and I defy you to find an example that doesn't fit that formula, right? You have to have you have to have visionary, well-funded, smart ownership to be able to do this on a sustained basis. You know, so that that's number one. When I got to Golden State, what was really interesting to me is is we just had a culture of losing. And it was okay. So, you know, our basketball team expected to lose games. And that was okay. Our business operation, people, we had, as I said, we had made the playoffs in 16 out of 17 years. Season's over in April. Everybody gets a long summer vacation. You get a raise. You come back and you do it all over again the next year. It's pretty nice. And so you had to really just completely disrupt the expectations, right? That's, that's not who we are. That's not what we're going to do here. All those things I listed as factored. My very first day at the Warriors gathered everybody in the same room and said, here's where we're going. Like, here's what here's why this is going to work. Look, I understand, you know, if number one, if you want to come along on the ride, you know, jump on board. Here we go. If you if you really don't believe because you've been here a long time that 
what I'm describing could happen in this organization, then then let's let's have a let's have a, a great conversation about moving on, and you'll be treated incredibly well and honored for the time that that you've been here. And and just that first year, we turned over probably 50% of our business organization. And the same time that was happening, we had hired, we hired Mark Jackson to be our our coach. And Mark. On a, on a totally consistent and parallel track, really uh, as a motivator of, of basketball players, got our players going from expecting to lose to expecting to win. And I give him huge credit for that. And the bad news in my job is I, I, I can't notch any wins on the court, right? I, all, all people like me can do is get the, the engine that propels that from a business standpoint ready for at a moment in time when the team reaches a place where it's captured people's attention, you can take it from zero to 60 overnight instead of saying, okay, well, next year we'll do this and the following year we'll do this. So, so we were ready. When we started actually becoming interesting to watch, the engine was ready. We'd gotten that fine tuned. And so, you know, we, we could take off like a rocket ship on the business side when the, when the team starting to be something that got really interesting to fans in the Bay Area and really around the world. In your career, getting elected to the Hall of Fame, that had to be, I mean, even though you're stepping down now, that had to be a, a capstone moment for you. Yeah, like there's no words to describe it. Like people like me, you know, players and coaches are in the Hall of Fame, right? And so it was such an unexpected never imagined thing to happen to me that I, you know, there really aren't adequate words to describe, you know, just how that felt. Um, it, it, it's, I'm, it's humbling. It's incredibly gratifying. It's, it was just a fantastic experience. So, yeah, I mean, I, it's the one thing that, that you never, you know, somebody on my track in our industry would never ever imagine happening. Starting from a ball boy to the Hall of Fame, huh? How's that journey? That sounded, that sounded good. It's uh, you have to pinch yourself because you know how lucky we all are to be a part of this industry and uh, to have jobs where you get up every morning saying like like I have the best job possible and I'm actually getting compensated for doing it. It's like it's amazing. And then to to you know have great mentors along the way, a lot of good luck. You know, but 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 end up achieving things that you dream about as a kid is uh, you know is is so rewarding, and it feels like a great time to step away for me because of because of all those things and the fact that I couldn't have done this a year ago, Jed, because we were <laughs> like every other team, we were lost in the woods without a compass a year ago, not having any idea how our industry was was going to get back to anything resembling normal. Today, we're you know. We have tickets on sale for games this season, and we have a clear line of sight toward a full building for the beginning of next season and, and get back to, you know, it won't be exactly the same, but get back to our new normal and a successful time after going through, you know, well over a year of just incredibly challenging uh, times. But because of that, I feel I really have a clear conscience and, and great leadership behind me to, to carry on what we built here at the Warriors. Yeah, we want to wish you the best of luck. Uh, appreciate your friendship and anything that I can personally do to help you as you think about alternatives. I know you're going to be a consultant with the Warriors, but there may be some other things you may want to do. I mean, your mind is still active, a lot of energy, 
a lot of passion, a lot of diverse interests. So those could uh, end up being uh, very productive for other organizations to tap into. Well, I, I don't think the R word is in my vocabulary, unfortunately. So uh, this isn't retirement, but I, you know, I wouldn't mind a little break at the end of the season. But I, after that, I think I'm going to see what the universe has in store with me. And, and Jed, just thanks to you and what you mean to our industry. You're a, you're a very bright light, you know, in, in helping people find organizations and helping organizations find people that uh, that can create success. And, and you do it with a lot of with so much class and and have done it so well for so long. I thank you too. Well, thanks. I really appreciate it.